Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. So today we have an unexpected curse to tell you about, and that is the Power Rangers curse. I love this, and I'm excited to talk about it. Anytime there's like a curse around a particular group of like actors or something like that who were involved in a certain project, I always find that super fascinating. Same. But so many Power Rangers actors who were either the Power Rangers themselves or were ancillary characters have died, murdered someone, or have been involved in other crimes. And an unusual amount of them have died of various diseases or accidents, like Trini, the original Yellow Ranger that died after her car fell off a cliff. And some have murdered others in tragic ways. And recently, one Power Ranger may be going to prison for 20 years for fraud. So today we're going to cover the Power Ranger curse in all the glory that it is. <laughs> it's so absolutely ridiculous. But you used to watch Power Rangers too, right? Like everyone did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Loved it. Loved it. Everyone has a season of Power Rangers. And yeah, I would say ours was the original Mighty Morphin, right? The OG. Wait. Yeah. They're not all Mighty Morphin. They should all be Mighty Morphin. That's like. No, they've turned into like dinosaurs and shit. <laughs> Didn't they come together as big one big dino? The Megazords? Like the Zords? <laughs> Shut up, Amanda. Are we? Are you hearing how much of an absolute nerd she is for Power Rangers? We were like talking before the episode and she was like throwing out like Power Rangers facts. Like, like it's things that I should know. Like it's like Ninja Turtles or like Star Wars or stuff like that. I feel like I could get, like, get the references, but she's like doing deep cuts of Power Rangers. And I'm just like... <laughs> I remember watching it. I don't know. Clearly, I don't know if I was as much of a fan as you were. (laughs) Whatever, Lindsay. (laughs) So what if we have like all the original toys and swords and stuff? It's fine. Zords. Yeah. Is that a sword? Is that that what they call their swords? No, they're they're big like robot looking things. Oh, oh. That's the best way I can describe it to you. God, Lindsay, you idiot. You should know what a Zord is, fool. No, no. My, to be fair, though, my husband collects them. Like, he has them oh, all. Okay. You've been forced into this, is what I'm hearing. But I don't know. You've really retained it. Yeah, I mean, I loved Power Rangers. I know Power Rangers. Yeah, like, I can absolutely. I'm excited. There's a bunch of new Power Rangers. And, of course, like, I don't know what's happening anymore. I don't know when they're, like, ninjas and dinos and, like, whatever they may be. But... Ollie was interested in it. And so I was like, oh, this is the one you will be watching. Good. And so he's starting out the right way. As he should. As he should. Yeah. But when I was looking at the curse, a lot of the original characters have died, which I mean, it's a very old show, too. It's not that old, though. Like, it's just a an unusual amount. So like, everyone remembers the like floating headman, right? That was in charge of the Power Rangers. I believe so. You should. You should, Zordon. He died of a heart aneurysm from what I saw. Or at least the voice of Zordon died of a heart aneurysm, I should say. Rita, the original bad guy, died. Rita Repulsa? Is that who you're talking about? You have to say her full name. Yes. See, see, you know it. You know it. She died, it looks like a pancreatic cancer. Sad. Yeah, really sad. 
just so many of them. So it reminded me a little bit of like Poltergeist, right? Like the movie Poltergeist and how everyone says like it was cursed because they used real bodies. Like a lot of the actors died in weird ways or like diseases that you wouldn't expect some of them to have. So also the cast of Glee. There's been a lot of tragedy around. Yeah. Yeah. Even recently. Yeah. Well, the first case we're going to talk about has to do with the original Red Ranger. Oh, gee. The OG Red Ranger, as Amanda put it in our outline. And he's from the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, as I'm now explained, which ran from 1993 to 1995. And in the show, his name was Jason Lee Scott, but his name in real life was Austin St. John. It looks like he may have changed his name for like a stage name because he also had Jason Lawrence Geiger. And he was arrested in May of 2020, too. So just a couple months ago. Just recently, yeah. So I want to start out with, I think, just the best article I saw. They started the article with, instead of it's morphin' time, the Red Ranger may be doing time. (laughs) And I I actually laughed out loud at that. 10 out of 10 copy. Like, they did well there. Perfect. And for good reason. Like, he should be in prison for this. Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. So him and 17 others were named in the indictment. Just to pause real quick. Before we even get into what it is, are there 17 people who you trust enough to commit a crime with? No, absolutely not. No, no, that's too many people, too many moving parts. If people were like, pick 17 friends to have a party with, I think I would pause for a moment and really have to like, who do I really want to be stuck in a room with? (laughs) I have to really think about it. Like, do I know? Am I that important? Now, Ben would be like, just 17 just 17, Mr. Popular. But I'm like, when I first read that, I was like, that's a lot of people to commit a crime with. Like a lot of trust. It is. But I think the way that they ran it, where everyone kind of reported to two people in a sense, like I think that's what kept it going for so long. But prosecutors say that he was involved in a scheme that defrauded a federal program set up to help struggling businesses during the COVID pandemic lockdowns in 2020, which is really sad that they take advantage of that. Yeah. But what they did. So him and the 17 others are being charged with conspiracy to commit wire fraud for allegedly receiving more than 3.5 million from 16 separate small business loans. That's a lot of small business loans. That's a lot, a lot. But I mean, like 16 loans for 18 people being involved, like one, it it doesn't like pop up if one person was getting multiple. I feel like that would flag faster than like having all these people apply, right? I guess so. And that's about like just a little bit shy of like 220,000 per loan. So it's not enough, I feel like, to like trigger some like, oh my God, this is a million dollar loan, you know, kind of deal. Right. So from what I understand, two of the people named in the indictment, Michael Hill and Andrew Moran, recruited co-conspirators to use existing businesses or to create businesses to submit applications to get the funding from the Small Business Administration's Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP. This program was part of the CARES Act, which was a federal law enacted in March of 2020. Its purpose was to provide emergency financial assistance to people suffering economic effects caused by the pandemic. So it was meant for good. (laughs) Well, and I mean, just from the name of it, I'm pretty sure the purpose of it was so that small businesses could continue to pay their employees even though they were shut down. Right. So people weren't like impoverished and unable to go find work. Right. So one assistance piece in the act was the authorization of up to $349 billion in forgivable loans to small businesses for 
like you said, like job retention and other expenses through the PPP. And on these applications, they are being said to have misrepresented material information. So things like the true nature of their business, how many employees they had, the amount of their payroll, things like that. So they they put fake information in. And of course, why they're they're in trouble is they didn't use the money as intended. So what it should have been used for is like what Lindsay just said. So like paying salaries, covering debt, utility payments for the actual business itself, healthcare benefits for employees. And what they are said to have used it on was first paying the two ringleaders, Hill and Moran. And then after that, they put money into their personal accounts to spend on whatever they wanted. In some instances, remember, there's several defendants, right? Some of the defendants sent the funds to another co-conspirator named Jonathan Spencer, and he was to invest it in foreign exchange markets. So like this money that was given to help, you know, people of the United States that were suffering from COVID lockdowns. Yeah. It was being placed in other markets. And because I don't see him as anything else other than the Red Ranger, I'm just calling him the Red Ranger. (laughs) The Red Ranger... I understand. ...allegedly obtained more than $400,000 in fraudulent loans. And remember, the combined total of all of them was around $3.5 That's wild, though. It is. So if convicted, they can face up to 20 years in federal prison. And the case is still being investigated by the FBI and the IRS... So, of course, as there's updates, we will update you in our True Crime Digest. Yeah. So next, we're going to talk about Ricardo Medina Jr., who's also a Red Ranger. And so Ricardo Medina Jr. starred in the Power Rangers Wild Force in 2002, and he also played a role in the Power Rangers Samurai in 2011. He was involved in the death of 36-year-old Joshua Sutter. And if you've listened to us before, you know that we try to focus on victims as much as possible when there's information about them that we can find. We talk about it. So we're going to talk a little bit about who Josh was. And so he seemed like a really good person and a nice human. His friends and family said he was defined by his love for animals and his calm demeanor, which what a thing to be known for, you know? Yeah. He moved to LA in 2011 to help his sister open Lucky Puppy, which helps rescue dogs. And that's even where he met his girlfriend. And by the time he moved to California, he already had a daughter. So Medina stabbed Josh in the abdomen with a sword on January 31st of 2015 after they had an argument in their home because they were roommates. The argument was over Medina's girlfriend and it turned physical after Medina locked himself and his girlfriend in his bedroom. Josh forced the door open and then Medina grabbed the nearby sword. From what I understand is that Josh was mad that Medina had his girlfriend around so often and that she was there when he wasn't home. I also saw that the argument may have started because of where Medina's girlfriend had parked that day. Either way, not a reason for anyone to die. We'll get into we don't really know what happened. This is like what came up. But there's some questions we'll have at the end about like, but was that true? So Medina called 911 on himself and Josh was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. And Medina was arrested for the stabbing on February 1st, but he claimed it was self-defense. So he was released pretty soon after. And he was arrested again after almost a year because they had done more of an investigation into it. And so in his trial, he pled guilty on March 16th of 2017 for voluntary manslaughter. And he was initially charged for murder, which holds a sentence of 26 years to life. But he had a plea agreement for a lesser charge 
voluntary manslaughter, which had a maximum sentence of only six years. And so he was given the full six years on March 30th of 2017. According to an interview with Jack Guzman, who played the Black Ranger in Wild Force from June of 2020, he was already released and he had had contact with him. So... Woof. He didn't serve the full time. He didn't serve the full six. Well, and I also, I know that there were prisons all over the country that released prisoners earlier because of COVID. So I would wonder if he happened to be lucky or if, I don't know. And it was interesting because we, we looked for other sources talking about like when he was released, but that's all we could find. Yeah. And it's like, why would that guy lie about having contact with him? Yeah. And I watched a little bit of his interview because it was a long interview of them talking about just Power Rangers. And uh, he mentioned like a lot of the castmates didn't really talk to him after. And it wasn't like because of his crime, but just they fell out of touch, but he remained in contact with him. Yeah. So not surprisingly, this case left people with a lot of questions. And so we're going to talk a little bit about them. But the crime scene photos are incredibly bloody and gruesome. Josh's sister, Rachel Kennedy, says that when looking at photos that were taken by the crime scene cleanup company, the damage to the bedroom door wasn't shown, which is interesting, right? Right. And like they're saying that Josh pushed his way or kicked down the door or like forced his way into that bedroom. Mm -hmm. You would think that if that did indeed happen, there would be some sort of damage on that door. Mm -hmm. Because, right, like he was saying it was self-defense. But like also the way that his family describes him, you know, as a calm demeanor, it just didn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah. And so Josh's family also brought up some other peculiar details. Like Josh had been on the phone with his dad just a few minutes before his death. And the two were talking about organic farming. And Josh was asking him for tips on how to like grow his garden, which adorable. I love this. And Don, Josh's dad, remembers hearing a commotion in the background nearing the end of the call. And likely this was Medina and his girlfriend arguing. The Sutters say that in the investigation report, it states that after the fight broke out, Josh like retreated to a bathroom with Medina's girlfriend, and that there was no mention of Josh forcing or breaking his way into Medina's bedroom. It's interesting when, like, the investigation report doesn't add up to the story that's being told. Especially, I would imagine that had this case gone to trial, defense counsel would have been like, well, what about this, right? And so for me, it doesn't seem like, oh, he didn't do it. It's like, maybe it didn't happen how he said it did, right? And so perhaps it wasn't self-defense, right? Like, which it really doesn't seem like it is. It sounds like the defense knew that if they took it to trial, they would get a conviction for murder because it's kind of clear that something happened that is outside of the story that he's telling. And another thing that's very strange is like when you said that the report says that Josh retreated into a bathroom with Medina's girlfriend, that's an entirely different story than Medina taking his girlfriend into his room and then Josh forcing his way in. So it's just like what actually happened and what was actually going on. Yeah. And so there's also talk about a possible hammer being used. The Sutter family says that Josh had suffered two skull fractures and that a bloody hammer was originally found at the crime scene, but there's no mention of this hammer in the official investigation report. That's weird too. Yeah. And while in court on March 30th, Don Sutter mentioned that Josh had been stabbed 10 times. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. But what's hard for me is that it's not 10 swords with a small knife, because when you hear of overkill, when someone's like panicked, right, like you can see someone continuing to stab because they're scared. But when it comes to a sword, it's a whole body motion, right? Right. 
to like stab someone with a sword, pull it out and do that over and over again. So that just more and more doesn't sound like self-defense. And so Don was also granted permission by the judge to ask Medina a question. And what he asked was, this is what I want to say. Answer this question for me. How did Joshua get two skull fractures to his head as he lay compromised? And he did not get an answer. Another interesting thing we saw was how Josh and Medina had met. So Rachel, Josh's sister, her dog business grew and she needed more space. So she rented a place in the country and Josh took care of the larger dogs. And he was interested in organic farming so that he could give the dogs natural food. And he grew crops and met with local ranchers to learn more. And Rachel hired Medina to help out at that country property, and he was to help with the dogs in exchange for rent. So the Sutters later said that he was not performing his duties well and that Rachel had intended to evict him the day after Josh was killed. So I wonder if he was aware of that, you know, like, could you imagine like the heat of the moment they're like, if they were like arguing back and forth or if he overheard something, like if you're living there, you could have overheard many of things. Right. And I'm wondering if maybe, yeah, you're right. It may have been brought up. I don't know what happened. Yeah. But it is really unfortunate that, you know, like this poor guy died by a sword one and like I didn't really serve that long of time for like a really brutal murder. No, exactly. And I would even say too, like when we're talking about like the fact that he was working there in exchange for rent, like unless he was doing the job of two people, he wasn't doing the rent of two people. And so chances are, I would imagine if you were doing that, like things like utilities, toilet paper, like that kind of stuff would all be taken care of. And so if you have more than one person, then you have double the expense that you did not anticipate and that, frankly, like you do not want. Yeah. In addition to that person, just not part of it. But a really horrific way to fucking kill somebody, especially over whatever nonsense it seems like it was, you know? Exactly. And the fact that he was stabbed multiple times, to me, that just says not self-defense. That's not self-defense when they're stabbed that many times. With a sword. Yeah. I mean, I think that it could be self-defense with that many stab wounds with a different type of weapon or a different set of circumstances. Just like to be a fly on the wall in that interaction, because like the person that he seemed to be did not seem like the kind of person who would force his way into a room to yell at somebody. Like right. he, his life literally was like helping animals and he's like trying to organically farm so these dogs aren't eating like kibble. It, it feels incongruent. It does. But yeah, brutal and horrible. And we have another one. Woof. Yeah, a really, really rough one. But this person was not a Power Ranger, but they appeared in the first season as a child actor. So I felt like that counted. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, also, when we were talking about like the Power Ranger curse, like it wasn't just like the main characters. It was people involved with the show. Right. Right. And most of the time when people are when we're talking about like entertainment industry or production type of curses, it's anybody who touched it, not just the stars. Yes, exactly. I need to go back and I want to watch this episode now. But we're going to be talking about Skylar DeLeon. And she was involved with the murder of Thomas and Jackie Hawks, who were described as the sweetest people. So again, we always want to talk about the victims. And looking these two up made my heart really sad because they just seem like the cutest couple in the world. Tom came from a law enforcement background and he raised his two sons after his first divorce. So Jackie was his second wife and she stepped up in the role of stepmother and she loved it. Jackie was super down to earth. All her friends said she was like really fun to hang out with and was just a joy to be around. The couple had 150 people at their wedding and they were very much loved. Mm, heartbreaking. It is really heartbreaking. So 
their friends and family say that they were more savers than spenders most of their life. And also, Tom had invested in a couple small properties. So with both those things, he was able to retire early. Their goal was to buy a boat and to live on it. So they purchased their dream yacht for around 300000 and they named it The Well Deserved. Oh, which was, I thought, a cute name. That's so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was a 55-foot trawler that they added a lot of equipment to. So they went through a few of them, but one was like a GPS system. And it was like a really nice one from what I understand. Remember, Lindsay and I are trying to learn boat things. and All the time. Yeah. <laughs> we were trying to understand it. But it seemed like it was a really like, nice system and they had upgraded a ton of stuff in it. So they're boat was moored in Newport Harbor. And I'm like, what is that? I thought you dock a boat. Well, (laughs) mooring versus docking, from what I saw, mooring at a boat dock means securing it parallel to the dock and leaving three sides open to the water. But then when I saw pictures of the actual boat itself in a documentary, it looked like it was parked, like the best way I can describe it is it looks like it was parked in the water. And they would take a small boat to travel back and forth from the dock to the well-deserved. So think of like a boat parking lot, but without a walkway. Interesting. I've never seen a marina have something like that. Like I've always seen where like there's a narrow, skinny walkway around it. That's what I thought too. But yeah, I mean, that was some of the pictures I saw. So I don't know if they moved it towards the dock or not, but just interesting. Yeah. At least from what they showed of the marina. But with their brand new boat, the thing that they saved up for, they would often travel down to Mexico and they'd go to like Catalina Island too. And just they had like a couple areas that they always frequented. And I thought it was super adorable because they made home movies and they made a ton of them from what I saw of all their different trips and them just being like the cutest couple and going like, this is what we're doing today. Here's where we are. And like, here's Tom working out. Here's this. I think of home movies from like when we were kids like you know like with your mom with like the weird camcorder thing that was like i did not have home movies as a child we had a couple mainly my sister to be honest but it's like always shaky i saw it on tv that people did that but i was like do people do that really but i love that they did yeah also you said catalina and in my head i said wine mixer do you know what i'm talking about from stepbrothers no this is the catalina fucking wine mixer oh <laughs> yes yes i was like I know that. I think of Catalina Island only because we've gone to Catalina Island. Oh, did you have a wine mixer there? Uh, No, but I did have delicious ice cream. I do like delicious ice cream. <laughs> so Tom and Jackie decided to sell their boat in 2004 for around $440,000. It must have been a hell of a boat, right? We'll share pictures of it, but like clearly it was even from that number. Yeah. Well, it was well kept and they added to it. Yeah. And so the reason they decided to sell it was because they wanted to be closer to their grandson. And something that made us really sad when we were researching was that Jackie was involved in an accident when she was 22 that left her with some internal damage. And so she wasn't able to have kids. And she was like insanely excited for her stepson, Matt, to have a baby. And she really wanted to be involved. So like, it's just very sweet. Yeah. 
So Tom and Jackie's plan was to downsize, buy a smaller boat to dock in Mexico and get a little house there or maybe Arizona or maybe both. And this way they would still be close enough to visit their grandson in Arizona. Now, because they were trying to be frugal, they wanted to bypass the broker and just sell the boat in their own, which I feel like that makes sense, especially like at that price, that would be a massive fee. And so they took out an ad in a boating magazine. And their last trip was to Catalina Island, as we just mentioned a moment ago, with Tom's brother, Jim, on November 12th of 2004. And Jim brought his boat and they all had like a little party. And in their video, uh, you hear Jackie describe what is happening. And she says, this is our last trip to the island because we sold the boat and we're all having a really good time. I'm like, oh, Jackie. Yeah. And so they told Jim that the sale was going to take place in the next few days. And then no one could get a hold of them. So their kids began to get concerned understandably, because that was very out of character for them to be out of touch. I mean, like, especially, right, like, they're literally selling this, like, amazing boat so that they can live closer to, like, at least one of their children and their grandson, right? So clearly they're, like, in touch. And so they start to get worried, so they reach out to their Uncle Jim. And so Jim lived in San Diego, but he used to be the chief of police for the Carlsbad Police Department. And they begin searching for them. They find the boat in Newport Harbor, but there's no sign of the couple or their car. But they did notice that the dinghy wasn't tied and the motor wasn't placed where it should be. Also, nothing about the boat seemed right. Like it was off. Yeah. Well, because when Tom would moor or dock his boat, he very much took care of it, right? Mm -hmm. He would follow protocol. He'd put everything where it should be. Yeah. And like, you know, they were supposed to sell it. So they're like, well, did they sell it or were they the last ones to use it? It just seemed very weird. Yeah. So, of course, they're all trying to retrace their steps to find where they might have been. And they reached out to Trisha Schultz, who was a friend of the couple. And when they did, she was told that the buyer was going to come and do a test drive or run, whatever you want to call it, on the boat. So she knew, okay, the last time I heard from them, the last thing I heard was that they were planning on doing this test run with the buyer. Yeah. And then also on Monday, November 15th, Jackie had left another friend a voicemail about being at sea with the purchaser and that she would get back to him. So it sounded like what I thought, maybe she was returning a call and he just didn't answer. So she left him a message. Yeah. And they had planned on going towards Catalina Island and that the sale would happen. And she had mentioned that she'd be home before Thanksgiving. Not that the test run would take that long before Thanksgiving. Yeah. But I think just that the sale would be done, everything would be done, and she'd be able to be home, I'm guessing, with the kids for Thanksgiving. At some point, too, Tom had mentioned to a family member that the buyer was a childhood actor. Since they didn't know if the boat had been sold, Jim left a note on the boat and he asked to speak with the buyer and that he did mention the Hawks are missing and then left his phone number. So then a woman calls Jim back and her name is Jennifer. And she says, we purchased the boat. She acts super sweet and she tells them that her and her spouse, Skylar, bought the boat in cash. Suspicious already. Immediately suspicious. Yeah, very suspicious. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Like to for anyone to be holding at once. Also, like I can't even fathom how much like, space that would take up. Like how many different bags do you need to carry that much money? I just imagine like the classic suitcase. And there's a reason I think that too. I'll tell you in a minute, but... No, I know. I know. But like, my point is more like, in my head, I'm like, it feels more than a bag. Yeah. Yeah. 
right? Even like even if it's hundreds, right? Because our, our highest denomination of bills is a hundred. So like a lot of money. It's a lot of fucking money. So she also mentions not knowing where the hawks are, but she also said, but I've been trying to get a hold of them because I need some information about the boat, but we haven't seen them since they drove away the day of the sale. She also said that she thought that they were going to go to Mexico. And Jim thought all of this was suspicious. So he called one of their friends in Arizona named Patricia Schutz. And Patricia was in charge of paying their bills and like basically handling all of their finances while they traveled because they, one, didn't always have internet access where they were. And it was just more streamlined to have someone do it for them. I do find that interesting, though, by the way, having a third party take care of your finances like that, unless they were your like accountant or somebody who you paid. I think that's what she did for them. Okay, so she was like friend, but also like. Yeah, so she said that if they had gotten that much money, especially that they would have deposited it immediately into their account and she would have been able to see that. She didn't see any proof of that money ever coming into their possession. Jim told her that he was going to file a missing persons report because now it's like, we've checked everywhere. We don't know where they are. When he filed the report, he had already done basically all the beginning work for the police because, you know, he had a background in it. Yeah. I also, like, just generally, if someone goes to buy something that is that expensive in cash... I feel like I would be like, I am not part of whatever scheme you're doing. Like, yeah. And I also like that's the difference. It's like it's just an older generation, too. Right. Like we're like now we're like, what nefarious means? Where did you get that money from? What are you trying to involve me in? What weird money laundering scheme are you a part of? Right. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's something that we see now more because before it used to be like you paid in cash. Cash was king. Mm -hmm. And now we're like, "Mm." why do you have that? I like a digital print. I don't want to go to a bank. Yeah. Well, I think too, and and this is just my speculation, is like he heard childhood actor. And when you think of like childhood actor, you're like, oh, they probably have a lot of money. But also us, like we were just saying, like, we'd be like, but why are you doing this in cash? Why is this happening? (laughs) Like, how can I confirm this? Well, and I also feel like I would be like, send me a wire. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Just like how you would if you were going to like get a mortgage or something like that. Like I would be like, send me a wire. Yeah, you can do that. That's fine. Let's do that instead. For sure. For sure. But unfortunately, I think Skylar was a master manipulator. Yeah, I was like, it seems like Skylar was really good at manipulating people to do what she wanted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I do think Tom had some suspicions. I would imagine. I mean, like anybody shows up and is kind of like, I don't know. I don't know. Well, let's continue. Let's continue. So on November 26th of 2004, Tom and Jackie have been missing for 11 days. And that's when police started investigating Jennifer and Skylar. Skylar at that point was already a convicted felon who was on probation for armed burglary. And just a little bit on Skylar. She grew up with her father, who was always involved with drugs and kind of always in trouble with the law. He'd also spent some time in prison. But her dad got her into acting so that he could make money off of her. And she wasn't good at remembering her lines and her father would yell at her on set, which is like... That's really sad. Terrible and awful. And also, like, everyone who is present for that should have been like, what the fuck is happening right now? And we'll talk more about what it was like for Skylar growing up just briefly. But like, mm-hmm. wasn't good. Ugh. And so, understandably, Skylar hated acting. <laughs> so Skylar joined the Marines. And some people think that she did that in order to impress her dad. And 
By the time she left, she had a big story about how she was a successful Marine sniper. And then as folks did digging, it became pretty clear that she was only there for a couple weeks. So no, she wasn't a successful Marine sniper because she was probably just in basic training. Probably. And here's kind of where she makes up these stories and gets people bought in. Yeah. Like, be impressed with what I've done. I'm a sniper. I was this. I'm a childhood actor. You know, like she was very good at giving people these stories. Yeah. Well, and also like in terms of like if you're making up a lie about a profession, there are things that you can check and there's things that you can't. So if you pair one that you can check and you can verify with something that you can't verify, if you can verify the first one, you might believe the second one, you know? Mm -hmm. And so Skylar met Jennifer after she left the Marines and they actually met online. They dated for a year and then Skylar proposed to Jennifer and they actually had two weddings, a simple and a formal wedding. And then nine months after the wedding, they had the baby, but then they got pregnant again. And so they were deep in debt. And so some wonder, well, how could you afford a boat if you're so deep in debt and if you've got one child and another on the way? Yeah. And also, mind you, Skylar's on probation. So it's not as though like convicted felons have a very difficult time finding jobs, right? Especially jobs that would pay for a boat that's this fancy. So Sergeant Dave Byington sent a detective to the boat on November 27th. And remember, we originally talked about how Tom and Jackie like kept their boat like so nice and they took care of it. When they get to the boat, it's kind of a mess. And he looks around and he finds a Target receipt that shows the purchase of trash bags, Tums, and bleach. And the Sergeant Byington basically was like, this looks like a kill kit to me. And I mean, it kind of does. It kind of does. I mean, it also, I would say, it could look like somebody had a stomach virus and was cleaning up after it. But like, I feel like when you put something that can clean up blood and something that can like, you can put things into, you're making a kill kit, right? Like if you just need to throw duct tape on there. Yeah. So Target Security was able to pull up the photo to the purchase, and they had expected that it would be Skylar who was purchasing the items, but it wasn't. It was Steve Henderson, who was Jennifer's father. So they're like, okay, here's a clue. Let's go interview Steve. Yeah. And he says, yeah, I made that purchase, and that it was because my daughter and her spouse just bought a boat. And Steve was tasked with getting items to help clean up the brand new boat. Okay. Solid. I just feel like as a father, you should probably know what like financial status your daughter's in, at least a little bit. Like, no, how did they just afford this giant boat? Yeah, I mean, like, I would imagine that they weren't like living it up before that. So if they're like going from like a very small or modest home to a yacht, I would be like, yeah, how did this come to be? Yeah. How do I do that? <laughs> how did that work? Yeah. Or like, or at the very least, like, is something wrong? Yeah. Unless you are aware of what is happening. Exactly. So authorities are like, okay, cool. But where's Skylar and Jennifer right now? And her father's like, oh, they're down the street helping clean a church. And the detective that went to interview, he was like, that actually made me feel a little bit better because I'm like, okay, these kids, like, they're helping clean a church. Like, I overreacted. I misunderstood something. We're going to find the couple alive. It's going to be fine. Yeah. So authorities talk with Jennifer and Skylar and authorities tell them we're looking for the Hawks. Their family is concerned and they say, yeah, we're also concerned, too. We've been trying to reach them since we bought the boat. And and then Jennifer was like, yeah, they left a lot of property and clothes on the boat and she wasn't sure what she should do with their things. And again, she came off very genuine and sweet. And then Skylar discussed the purchase of the boat and had all of the paperwork. 
and all of the paperwork looked great. She had it notarized. It was complete with signatures and even fingerprints. Everything just seemed in order. So then authorities asked, well, can we do a proper interview and record it the following day at the station? And Skylar said, sure. So then on November 30th, 2004, the recorded interview takes place. Skylar seemed concerned and told authorities how she saw the boat in the magazine. So that's how she found out about the boat. And authorities are like, well, were you looking to buy a boat? And she was like, well, I'm always kind of looking. And they found it odd that someone that didn't have much was able to spend almost half a million dollars on a boat. I mean, fair. We're all wondering it. Also, like, I don't generally have boating magazines around. (laughs) No, no. And I could see, like, maybe where they lived, like, if they had an interest in boats, you know, like, if Skylar and her wife had, like, that interest, maybe they had, like, a boating magazine or maybe, you know, somewhere at work. I don't know. But seemed like they were interested in buying it. So then they asked her, well, how did you get the money? And this is where, like, it started to turn a little bit. She talked about her background and how she got in trouble and about the burglary that she was involved in. And she said it was part of a dope rip that was a drug ripoff. And she said that she wanted to invest the money to support her family. So like in a positive way, what she was pretty much describing, though, was money laundering, like just straight up telling the authorities that she was money laundering. (laughs) And uh, detectives thought it was unusual that someone would admit that to police and thought it was strange that someone would make up a story like this unless it was true. So they're like, well, I mean, I guess she's telling the truth. Like she got the money from money laundering, but like she's saying, oh, but I want to do it for my family. I don't want to do bad things anymore. And so they're like, okay, interesting. It's a common manipulation tactic to admit like a lesser misstep, if you will. Here, like they're doing something and they're not like technically hurting anybody. Like they didn't deal with real drugs. It was like a ripoff. So it's not as though there's a victim there. The victim here is like drug dealers, presumably. So they're like, "Hmm, okay, it's a victim in that crime that we don't really root for. But like to me, what's strange is that if you were going to invest in a better life for your family, would it be a boat? That's what you would do for your like baby and pregnant wife is you would decide like we're going to become boat people. Mm hmm. Rather than be like, we're going to buy like a reasonably sized home and stock it with food and toys and furniture and all the things, right? Yeah. Bizarre. So Skylar's story is that they all went out to test the boat and then they returned. So she set up the purchase and it went down in the parking lot and kind of like just like what would happen in a movie. <laughs> she has like a suitcase full of cash of all hundred dollar bills. Right? Like That's what we were talking about earlier is like the suitcase full of cash feels like equally strange to me. Comical. Like that doesn't happen. Comical. <laughs> Yeah. And so this raises a red flag to detectives because unlike in movies, drug money typically isn't like pristinely kept in like bands. It's normally kind of chaotic. And so Skylar even gave details about Tom when he saw the cash and how he said, close that thing and asked if it was all there. And Skylar said that she laughed and said, yeah, and that Tom was excited but nervous. And so that seems very strange to me because that seems like it's ripped out of a movie. Like I wouldn't be like, close that thing. I would be like, what's what's happening? (laughs) Is it all there? Yeah, you bet your baby we're going to sit down and we're going to stack it out and see if it's there. Like if I'm selling something for $440,000, like I'm absolutely going to count the money. And that's just, it's just like another stranger thing to me, right? Because if you were going to pay someone in this way, the person who is receiving the money is going to count the money. You would think. Yeah. And so she said that Tom then gave her the keys and drove off in their car. And she even mentioned that Tom said they were looking to buy a home in San Carlos. So when authorities discuss the interview, they say that she's 
very convincing. And then the detectives show her a strange video that they had had. And so it's a video of Skylar and Jennifer trying to take money out of the Hawks account while they're in Arizona. And so luckily, the bank manager there was like, this looks a little strange. And so he calls the friend who is in charge of Tom and Jackie's finances, Patricia, as we discussed earlier. And at this point, you know, they're seeing this video and the detective asks Skylar, why is it that you have a power of attorney? That is a big stumbling point for the family. And also, in case you don't know what a power of attorney is, a power of attorney is, I mean, it's kind of, it is what it says it is, right? But it basically gives another person the ability to act kind of as your proxy so they could access your bank accounts. They could sell your house. They could sell your car. Like, they can do very big things. They can sign contracts on your behalf. So it's a very big deal. And it's certainly not something that I think anybody would enter into lightly. And that was one of the things that Skylar and Jennifer had was this power of attorney that basically gave them power over all of the Hawks assets. And the specific version of what they had signed was a durable power of attorney. And so this is what Skylar said. Skylar was like, oh, you know what? They were looking at buying property in Mexico. And it's just kind of there's a lot of hoops to jump through. And I have dual citizenship and I'm of Mexican descent, so I can facilitate the sale. And Skylar's like, oh, and they were so helpful and gave us such a good deal on the yacht that I wanted to be helpful. And I told them I would go over them an account for them. And she even says she has witnesses. And their witnesses, by the way, are the missing couple, her own wife, her own child, and the notary, as well as a man named Alonzo Machame. And Alonzo was also listed as a witness on the bill of sale. So then they're like, all right, new breadcrumb. Let's go look into Alonzo. Yeah. So when they looked at Alonzo, they found that Skylar met him while in jail. And Alonzo was a guard in the jail and they became quick friends. Bizarre. Very bizarre. So they go and they interview Alonzo and he tells the same parking lot story and how they drove away after. They also interview the notary. Her name was Kathleen Harris. And she had a super clean background. She had never been in trouble before. And she also tells the exact same story. Parking lot, they drove away. So Detectives were kind of at a dead end at this point. On December 13th, the detectives go to the media and they're like, we need your help. So Ryan Hawks, one of the Hawks children, is interviewed and gives the call for help. So usually they'll use a family member Yeah, in this instance to make you care, right? Like they miss their father and their stepmom and they're doing anything they can to find them. Can you help us? And they asked for help finding the car because that was like a missing piece. Like, where is their car? And their car was a 1998 Honda CRV with Arizona plates. The very next day, a woman calls about the car and she's like, I see it. This woman lives in Mexico in a trailer park and the car was in the parking lot. On December 16th, 2004, authorities go to Ensenada, Mexico and Mexican authorities take the lead, right? They're like already there, ready to go. They interview the person whose parking spot the car was in and the guy comes out and he's like, well, that's not my car. It was a gift given to my son by some of his friends. And one of the detectives I was watching an interview, he's like, I didn't understand what was happening because, you know, the Mexican authorities are speaking Spanish to this man. But all I hear is the name of the person, the friend, and they say Skylar's name. And he said, in that moment, I knew the Hawks were dead and that Skylar had murdered them. So Skylar had befriended this guy's son years earlier. And there were witnesses that Skylar and Jennifer dropped the car off there. That seems just like stupid criminal behavior. Yeah, it is. It, it is. Like when you cross the border, especially, you know, like in this missing couple's car, you know, they're going to find it, right? They're going to see you in their car. And it's not like they gave you their car, too. Yeah. So 
The same day that the car was found, Skylar actually shows up at the police station with her infant daughter and they're interviewing her again and the baby spits up on her. So I couldn't hear the full interview, but it looks like they're like, you know, scrambling around to try to get the spit up off and you see her get up and like walk out. The following day, she's finally arrested on December 17th on suspicion of money laundering. Surprise, surprise. So in one of her first court hearings for this, Skylar is crying and she seems kind of genuine. But when police had searched Skylar's residence, they found some evidence. First off, they found Tom and Jackie's laptop. They also found that video camera that we talked about earlier. And they're looking at the video camera and they can see like, okay, it starts with home videos from Tom and Jackie and then it cuts off and then it goes to Skylar and Jennifer's family home video. They recorded over someone's home videos. My thing isn't even so much that is the fact that they didn't fully delete the ones that were there. So when they watched that video, they looked at the people who they killed and then looked at their happy family. Yeah. Like the fact that you could do one and two, right? Monsters. So they also found a business card for Joe Bahana, a detective who was assigned to Interpol. And his job was basically to serve as a liaison between Mexican police when they investigated a crime. And so what they find out is that the detective had been helping the Enslada police come to California because of the John Jarvie case. And John Jarvie was found with his throat slit. And so John Jarvie was a petty counterfeiter and who had served time in prison. And so what they had later learned about what had happened to him was this. So Skylar had talked to him about a big score. And she said that she had come from a wealthy family and that they planned on some big investments. And that all Jarvie needed to do was give Skylar 50000 in cash and they would go to Mexico and get this big score. So Skylar was on work release during the day. So the two of them drove down to Mexico outside of Ensenada, and then Jarvie didn't come back. So Skylar, while they were there, took him down into a ravine, slit his throat, and then left. So after that, Skylar goes back to her prison and does her nightly check-in at the jail. And Mexican police had interviewed Skylar in 2003 when the murder had happened. But from what I understand, she wasn't at that point considered the primary suspect. It was still considered unresolved. Also talking about other people who were involved with the present case, which is the murder of the Hawks, the notary that had been used to sign the bill of sale was Kathleen Harris. And they interviewed her four or five times. And each time she kept to her story. So eventually they brought in another detective to interview her. And that was Detective Keith Crawman. And he said that he knew that she was lying based on her body language. He kept calling her out during the interview and said, I don't believe you. And you should tell the truth. So she said something about needing to get their thumbprints, and the detective asked if she took the thumbprints. And she said that she was 90% sure, and he said it's 100% or it's nothing, and then his four-year-old would do a better job than her. That interview was intense watching. Well, I mean, like, I feel like at some point they're like, we need someone to crack here. Yes. And it's certainly not going to be like, we're going to talk more about other people who eventually spoke up. But I feel like she's like the first person that they could get to crack, right? Yeah. Like, no matter what her involvement is, she's not going to have made as much as the other people who were involved. Right. Like, she's the notary. Yeah. But so, all through this, she still sticks to her story, though. But then, the next call they got was from her attorney, saying that she wanted to come in and make a statement. So, the new detective coming in and interviewing her finally got her to make the right choice. So then when she comes in again, she finally breaks down and says they were not in a parking lot. She says she never met Tom and Jackie and that she was given documents and she was paid in cash 
to backdate them. So then they began pressuring the others because they knew they finally had them. So then they bring Alonzo Machain back in and he finally gives in too and gives details. And he gives details in the conspiracy to murder the Hawks. And he said that he had met Skylar and she talked about having so much money and being part of the Power Rangers. And I just thought this was ridiculous because she literally was a kid in one episode of season one called Second Chance. I couldn't find that she ever came back. And that show, they'd always have a kid that, you know, they saved. And occasionally I think it might be the same kid. But like, yeah, it wasn't a big role. Like, it wasn't a big role. <laughs> it wasn't something, like, to tell random people about. Like, your friends and family, maybe. But, like, random person I met as an adult, I probably wouldn't bring it up. Also, if someone's saying they have a lot of money, they don't have a lot of money. That too, yeah. Just go ahead and put that in the back of your brain. <laughs> so, Skylar told him that she was going to do something to make a lot of money. And that she was an international contract killer and gets contracts to kill bad people, but never the good people. She said that she takes them out to sea and that she tosses them overboard. And she promised Alonzo a million dollars to help with a job that was coming up. I have a question. A million dollars for a boat that's worth 440000 Why would you promise another person that much money? Because like, if that person is willing to come help kill someone with you, they're likely willing to kill you too if you don't deliver. That's true. You see what I'm saying? I'm like, why would you say a million dollars? Like, figure out a cut that feels proportional based on whatever. I'm not going to tell people how to be better criminals, but I'm just like, <laughs> that feels like it's going to bite you in the ass. For sure. Yeah. But they seem to exaggerate a lot. So there we are. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So then on November 6th, Alonzo and Skylar go aboard the well-deserved. Tom immediately had suspicions meeting them, and he didn't think that they could afford the sale. And from some of the interviews I saw, they're like, remember, he had a law enforcement background, so he was probably pretty good at reading people and was like, this seems weird. So then I think Skylar could see that Tom was kind of hesitant. So then she called Jennifer and had her bring their one-year-old daughter to meet Tom and Jackie. And Jennifer and the baby charmed Jackie. You know, how Jackie felt about kids. So Jackie's playing with the baby. Jennifer's talking about her pregnancy. And all she's thinking is like, oh, my grandson, my grandson, like my grandson this, telling them about what they were planning on doing. Yeah. So Alonzo says that Skylar started to size up Mr. Hawk and said that she could probably take him, but it would be better to have someone else with them. And just to paint a picture, Tom was like built. He worked out quite a bit. He was very fit. So he wouldn't be an easy person to just take down. So Skylar wanted a big guy for some help. So he met a man named, and this made me laugh, John F. Kennedy <laughs> through a mutual friend Skylar had worked with. And just later on, we, we learn after, you know, they get caught. The mutual friend that introduced the two was Myron Sandora Gardner. And Skylar initially asked him for help, but he declined. And he's the one that put him in contact with Kennedy. He later got arrested, but struck a plea deal. But back to Kennedy. So John Fitzgerald Kennedy was an original founding member of the Long Beach Insane Crips. His gang moniker was CJ for Crazy John. He became the muscle of the scheme. He was about six feet tall and very muscular. And just to give you a little bit of background on him, by the time he was 40, he had 21 arrests for crimes like battery, grand theft, drugs, and even attempted murder. So back to the day of the test. 
So, again, the Hawks thought they were just going for a test run with Skylar and his associates, and John presented himself as an accountant and, and noted that he was just there to iron out the details. So, the tactic that they used was that they first separated the couple. Jackie was in the kitchen, and then she heard the commotion, and she heard Kennedy overpowering Tom. Then they handcuffed Tom while Alonzo went to get Jackie. And by, by the way, again, this is Alonzo's explanation of what happened. So, they then laid Tom and Jackie down the bed. Oh, and Jackie pled for her life. And she said, I want to see my grandson. And she also said to Skylar, how could you do this? You brought your pregnant wife on board. We met your daughter. We trusted you. And like, just like, fuck Skylar, right? Like the fact that you could do this generally, but like this woman's like pleading for her grandbaby. Yeah. You have to be a particular brand of heartless, you know, for that to not affect you in some way. Also to like use your child and pregnant wife. But so, I mean, I don't know so much about use the pregnant wife. I think she was in on it, but like the child is innocent in this. So Alonzo told detectives that Tom, while he was tied up, grabbed Jackie's hand and he tried to comfort her. And he said things like, where we're going, we're going to be together. That just like hurts my heart so bad. I know. We all want to be loved like Jackie was loved by Tom, right? Yeah. So each of them was then brought up to sign the documents for the sale. They were told that if they would cooperate, that they would let them go. Jackie signed her name wrong and she left the S off at Hawks. And it also wasn't her normal signature. So Skylar was navigating to the deepest part in the area, which is about 3,500 feet deep. And then they brought the anchor to the back of the boat and handcuffed the couple to it. Tom, during this, kicked Skylar so hard that she fell to the ground, and when she stood up, she tossed the anchor off the side of the boat. They were pulled across the deck, and Jackie's head got hit on the way out into the ocean. Skylar screamed, wahoo, and then watched the water. Then they turned the boat around. And I'm like, it's bad enough to do this, but what a cruel way to do it. Yeah, they were alive. You know, like, tying them to an anchor while alive, knowing, like, that's going to be a long, drawn-out death. Yeah, it's it's a scary, scary death. Like, and it's just unnecessary. And also just like the exclamation after, right? Like, it's clear that you're not just doing this as a means to the to an end, right? Like, you're not just like, I need like something for my family. I need something for myself. Like, it's, I have no regard for their lives, clearly, right? Yeah, it's absolutely heartless. Yeah, absolutely heartless. So again, they turned the boat around and Kennedy decided to fish and drink beer on the way back. Like nothing happened. It was no big deal. Like nothing happened. And just to note too, remember, like they took them to the deepest part, dropped the anchor. They never found their bodies. And what a like a heartbreaking fact, especially, you know, if you're their children, right? Like you wouldn't be able to say goodbye properly. And how can you do that if, you know, you don't get that closure? Yeah. So when Skylar was arrested, they didn't have enough to arrest Jennifer. But four months later, on April 6th of 2005, Jennifer was offered immunity if she would tell them what happened and testify against Skylar. And she turned it down and stuck with Skylar. But later she was arrested and some were surprised because when it happened, again, she wasn't on the boat, right? Like she was used to like comfort them, right? And like get them comfortable. And then she left. So Jennifer's attorney tried to have her tried separately. So November 2006, Jennifer was on trial and her attorney argued that she didn't know what was going on until the Hawks had already been killed and that she only did what she had done, which was, you know, kind of getting them comfortable because she was scared of Skylar and that she was forced to do it. But it wasn't really bought by the jury because later Skylar said that Jennifer was the brains behind the operation and that she had called Jennifer at every single step of the way, that Jennifer knew everything 
And then also, remember, we had that footage from the bank where they're trying to get access to Hawk's accounts and she's smiling and she doesn't look scared. And you would think that like, how many times have you seen a movie where someone's doing something they don't want to do and they make like eye contact with like the actual camera and they look scared, right? Like it's kind of a trope, but it's a trope enough where like if you were in that situation, you might be able to be like, this is my chance to like do something to indicate that I am not down with what's happening. So Jennifer was convicted and sentenced to life without parole. Yeah. And then the trial of Skylar took place in October of 2008. She was charged with murdering not only the Hawks, but also Jarvie. Her attorney at one point got up and wrote, Skylar is guilty of all three murders on a big notepad in front of the jurors. Which I'm like, what? Her defense focused on the abuse as a child and discussed that. So they're like, we know this, but here's what happened to Skylar. And they brought up things like when Skylar would bite her nails, her dad would stick toothpicks under her fingernail beds to teach her. And that like makes me like shiver. Ugh. Yeah. And then they discussed that she was physically abused and at one point also sexually abused. Her defense was hoping that the jurors would sympathize with her. And she ended up being convicted of all three murders and given the death penalty. I think the hardest thing is like when you talk at when when one talks about all of the trauma that somebody who's done something heinous has done, at least for me, like what I'm thinking about, like, at what part do you become culpable for the person that you've become? Right. Like, even with all of this fucking terrible trauma, if you are no longer under that person's control, at what point are you are you culpable? Right. Like, at what point do you get to say, like, no, you have to work your shit out as an adult. Like, you can't go around hurting people because you were hurt. And I think that's so hard. And I think that when we think of things like what is the purpose of our criminal justice system, right? Like, is it to lock away bad people? Is it to rehabilitate people? Is this person capable of being rehabilitated? Mm -hmm. And I think like, I, I really think about that, especially we talked about it last month in our Daytona Massacre episode, where there was no, there's just no way that that killer is ever going to be a good human. It's just not possible, in my opinion. Right. And in this version, like, I don't think there's a version where Skylar can be a good person. And I don't know if that's because of her trauma or because of, like, inherently who she is or who she became because of her trauma. But regardless of it, you can't let people just inflict horrors on other people because horrors were inflicted upon them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So shortly after Skylar was convicted, Kennedy was tried, also convicted and given the death penalty. So Alonso got a 20 year sentence for his cooperation. So even though Skylar and Kennedy received the death penalty, they will likely not ever be put to death due to California's moratorium on the death penalty. And on March 12th of 2019, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced through an executive order a moratorium on capital punishment. And so as long as that continues, no one will be put to death. I feel like it's so hard when we talk about the death penalty because I, I go back and forth as a person who I generally don't believe in it, but I also don't think Skylar will ever be rehabilitated. Yeah. And at the very least, she'll spend her life in prison. Yeah, for sure. So after all of this, I kept seeing people really wanted to know what happened to the boat. Interesting. Which I, I didn't really even think about it, but I'm like, okay, I guess what, what did happen to the boat? Yeah, I was like, fuck the boat. So law enforcement kept it on stilts in dry storage and in plastic wrap, which sounds weird to me, for four years as evidence. After they didn't need it anymore, it was returned to the Hawks children, Ryan and Matt. And unfortunately, it became a financial drain due to like taxes, maintenance, fixing it up after it had been in storage. And there was some damage done by sea lions and vandals at one point. What a combination of things. Right. 
So they decided it's better just to sell it. And from what I saw, they used a yacht broker, Dixon Yachts International Inc. And this made me really sad. Based on comparison sales, they listed it for 229000 Well, yeah, because it probably had like four years of like no maintenance and like all those things. And like, especially I can't imagine that Skylar and Jennifer knew how to take care of a yacht. So like, who knows what type of like damage they did to it in the short period that they had it, you know, like, like grinding gears. I don't know how to drive a manual car. And I feel like a boat might be similar to a manual car in some ways. But like, I also would imagine they didn't want to have that boat. I would be like, I need to get this out of my possession literally as soon as possible. Yeah. And I'm assuming whoever bought it changed the name because I couldn't really find anything on it after. Yeah. I mean, very fair. But at least like there there was justice, right? Like all the people that participated in this are behind bars and they will be forever. Yeah. Good. Uh, I feel really bad for, you know, their kids because I've seen a ton of interviews with them and just like where they are now. And it's just sad, especially one of them looks identical to his father, too. And so he was like, I was at every court date staring at them. Good. You're going to look at my father when you look at me. And it just broke my heart. I wish that that would matter. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it like I think it mattered for the child. I'm saying like, I don't think that Skylar or Jennifer had empathy no, not at all. In which to feel like, okay, you look like this person I did this terrible thing to. They're like, okay. Like they were clearly like joyous after it happened. So yeah, well, such a scheme though. Like that was a lot, a lot to do for not much, right? Like, and I mean, I guess like the the fraudulent paperwork, maybe they could have gotten away with it for a little bit, but I just feel like that car was going to come and bite them in the ass eventually either way. Yeah. It was really the car that did it. I was like, why didn't you just like drive it off a bridge? There's a lot of things you could have done with that car that wasn't parking it in a place where other people can see it. Yeah. Especially if they if there was ever a reward for them. Because mm-hmm. the person who found the car would obviously get something, right? And even if the friend that they left it with, if given the opportunity to make money off of a car that was parked in front of their house by someone who they're like kind of friends with, I feel like a lot of people would do that especially if it was in relation to a murder, you know? Yeah. I mean, what a fucking curse with the poor Power Rangers, though. I definitely, I feel like I have more reverence for the adult versions of these child stars and, like, what happens, you know? Like, yikes. Yeah. I hadn't heard of the Power Ranger curse. Honestly, when I first started researching, I was, like, looking for just weird stuff with childhood stars. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, so many of them were somehow involved in the Power Rangers. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And also, so I feel like when you have shows that have children primarily, they've got a lot more life to do a lot more terrible things versus like, I don't know, your average like sitcom. Oh, that's a sad way to look at it. I know it is a little pessimistic. But like, if you have someone who's in their 30s or 40s in a television show, like they have less time. They don't have a lot of time for killing. They don't have a lot of time to do like weird fucking overly complicated schemes and with 17 other people or to like unnecessarily murder people over things that are not that important yeah not that there's ever a good reason to murder someone but like these seem like specifically these were stupid reasons dumb motives yeah money and possibly housing yeah like you want to have housing housing is very important my point is that like if you're not doing your job or you're not fulfilling your end of the bargain it's strange to like want to kill someone for being like hey this is fucked you know? Yeah. Well, let us know if you've heard of any other franchise that's cursed. Yeah. Because I I know of a few, but 
I, I'm sure there's more. I didn't know about this one. Yeah. Are you obsessed with Power Rangers like Amanda and her husband? Is there a name for Power Ranger fans? You guys like <laughs> the Morphin Mednanskis? Shut the fuck up. That's all oh you are gosh. now. The Morphin Mednanskis. I'm no longer molasses. You know. No, you're the up. Morphin. The Morph Nan- the, mor- the Morph Nasties. That's you. All right, never morph mind. We Nasties. Went we went back down. <laughs> morph Nasties. Like, your mail carrier is going to be like, it is close. Close enough. I, honestly, we get everyone's mail. We They don't even care. They're just like, sure. M, Y at the end. Here you go. <laughs> you know, I did meet uh, the original Black Ranger at a Comic-Con once, and I was so stoked. And he was probably just like, this lady is fucking crazy. Amanda is beaming right now. I loved it. It was so great. We went to a Comic-Con years ago and uh, we knew he'd be there, but we're like, "Mm, I feel weird about like paying money to like say hi to someone. It just seems really strange to me or I'm I'm with you. I also don't care. Yeah. I'm like, that's cool that they exist. And I'm, I'm happy that they exist. If I had the opportunity, sure, I'd take a picture with them or get something signed. But like, it's a little much for me to get some like pay to do that. I don't know. They're human. Also, as we talked about last time, I'm not photogenic enough to spend $130 <laughs> on a bad photo of myself with a celebrity. Yeah, same. Because for me, I'm just I'm paying the money to meet them then. Like the photo is like, it's going to be bad. It's going to be so bad that it's like it passes good, bad and goes back to bad, bad. Just bad, bad. Well, uh, we got lucky that like we went into like this big hall area where I don't know everyone buys stuff and he walked by and my friend's like hey they're big fans will you go say hi and he actually like took the time to come and say hi to us oh how sweet and he was just like a really nice guy and that's Walter Jones was the original Black Ranger but I was very surprised because he was a lot shorter than I thought he'd be I feel like I knew that he was short. I don't know why I felt like I knew that. But when you look at the all the Power Rangers together, they all just look like really tall, I guess. Or maybe it's just, I don't know. Maybe it was me watching it as like a child being like, they're all giants. They're all giants. Yeah. <laughs> That's how Amanda talks. They're all giants. They were. Well, everyone's a giant to me, okay? Look, I get it. I get it. Five, two, and three quarters. It's very important. All right. Well, with that, everyone have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 